I noticed as a kid growing up in church, there were parts of the Bible that we did not talk about. There were parts of life that we would not talk about in church. Some things we would talk about in church all the time. We talked about forgiveness. We talked about grace. We talked about tithing. Don't forget about that. But other things were passed over in silence. We'd be reading, la, 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 la. Ooh. <clears throat> and then we would continue on. And so this would actually, I need that pitch. This would actually uh, leave stumbling blocks and hurdles and puzzles for me that I would have to work out in my personal life. And when I was reading God's word, these challenges were still there and I would have to encounter them. Here's one example. One such example was kind of the question of how do I respond when I see examples of evil or injustice or oppression in the world? I would see someone that I care about being mistreated or I would be mistreated, or I would see a group of people in the world, in a, in a place, in a situation, in the time being mistreated, and I would get really, really angry. I would get really mad. You want to see me mad, do something to someone that I care about. And I would wonder, what do I do with my anger? And in the Old Testament, I'd see a lot of violence. At Psalms, in the book of Psalm, I would see calls for violence. Some Psalms were very nice. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And you flip one page and David is calling for God to send his enemies down to Sheol. But in the New Testament, Jesus is telling me to love my enemy. And in the Old Testament, David is calling for God to send his enemy to hell. So I'm trying to figure out what do I do with this tension? 2 Timothy 2, 16? 2 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Third tries the charm. It says that all of scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for reproof. And so I know everything in here is God-breathed, this whole book. And if I'm trying to understand this, if I'm really trying to live this out, if I'm trying to follow God, I have to learn how to resolve some of these tensions in his word. And so that's actually how we're going to open our time together today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do this. I'm going to present you with two verses that form a paradox, not a contradiction, but a paradox. A paradox is um, something that is allegedly contradictory, but nevertheless true. So I'm going to show you a verse from Psalm 69 and the verse from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to try and reconcile these. And the key to reconciling these verses will be the key to the main focus of our time together today. So these are your verses. Matthew 5, 44, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we reconcile that with what we see in Psalm 69? Verses 27 and 28. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. The secret to reconciling these is the secret to what we're going to be really focusing our time on today. For the last few weeks, we've been walking through this series asking, where is God? How do I find God in these challenging seasons of life? We've looked at, how do I find God in my disappointment? How do I find God in my fear? How do I grow in my faith during these challenging times, these seasons of intense negative emotion? And today, we are digging into the most dangerous and the most ugly of our emotions. We're going to be asking this today. How do we find God in our anger, in our hate, in our outrage? The reason it's the most dangerous is that 
This emotion has the power to actually turn us into the very thing that we hate itself. I'll get more into that later. But in the Psalms, we see a certain type of Psalm. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. These are Psalms of imprecation. Imprecation means cursing, calling out to God for judgment and damnation of the enemies. There's actually quite a few of these. You can try and avoid them, but you won't be able to do that for long because they're all over the place. And the psalmist doesn't shy away from the dark, grimy corners of the human heart, and neither should we. So today we're answering this question, how do I find God in my anger? How do I find God in my anger? When I'm unjustly suffering, maybe you've been wrongfully dismissed from your job. Your boss made a mistake, trying to save face, and they let you go. Maybe you've been involved in a hit and run. Your body's all messed up, your car's totaled. It's just a real pain walking through this with your insurance. Maybe you're walking through a really messy uh, settling of an inheritance and everyone's getting nasty and catty. Maybe people are spreading rumors about you. Maybe you've been wrongfully discriminated against because of your age, because of your gender, because of your race, because of your income, or maybe something else along these lines. And in this, you're asking, God, why is this happening? When will this end? When will I get justice? When will I be vindicated here? And to answer this question, we're once again turning to the Psalms, but we have an interpretive hurdle that we need to get over, which is what we looked at from the outcome, from the outcome, from the outset. There's a hurdle we need to overcome. What do we do with these imprecatory Psalms, these Psalms of cursing? David calls for God to punish the wicked, for God to kill them, to send them to the land of the dead. But Jesus also says to bless our enemies. So God's word has calls to bless our enemies and to ask God to kill them. What do we do with this? To answer this, first we're going to try and understand what the Psalms meant in their original context when it was written. And then we're going to ask what it means now. Context is key. There's two parts of the context that will help us unlock the value of these psalms, how the psalm was legitimate at the time and how it's legitimate today. And there's two parts of this context. The two keys are this, covenant and prophecy. Covenant and prophecy. These are the two keys for us today. So covenant. David wrote these psalms, Psalm 69, within the context of the old covenant. God made a covenant with his people. If you remember all the way back in Genesis with Abraham, God said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Genesis 12 verse 3 says this, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm not just making this up. And there's several examples in the Old Testament of God doing exactly what he said he would do. Also, Israel was a theocracy. It was a theocratic state. Government and religion overlapped. David was the representative of his people to God. And so he was calling upon God to once again fulfill the promises of the covenant. That's what the psalmist is doing here in crying out to God for justice. It's also helpful to notice, scholars have noted, that these imprecations were motivated by several desires. There's a desire to promote righteousness, to demonstrate God's sovereignty, to cause the wicked to seek the Lord, and to provide an opportunity for the righteous to praise God. So let's summarize this quickly, the original context of the covenant. It was out of a zeal for God 
and an, and an abhorrence for sin that David called to God to punish the wicked and vindicate the righteous. This is all within the context of the Old Covenant, just like how we can read Leviticus and we can see how God's people at the time, they were not supposed to eat shellfish or pork or wear clothing made from mixed fabrics. We can read that, we can understand what it meant then, and we can understand what it means now. So too, with these Psalms of imprecation, with the cursing, we are now in a new covenant. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, first we see that, pardon me, to summarize this up, David's imprecations were within the context of God's covenant with Israel. That's the context of the covenant. Now for us today, the key for understanding Psalm 69 is within the context of prophecy. Psalm 69 is one of the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament. The gospel writers, the apostle Paul, and Jesus himself recognize Psalm 69 as being a prophecy about the person and the work of Jesus. There are several elements of this that are pulled out, that are fulfilled. Let me just share with you three. There's three elements that will, will prove this for us today. The first element is this. Here's an example. The person. Look at the person of Psalm 69. In verse 4 it says, They hated me without reason. And consider the person of Jesus. Jesus is the only truly righteous person. And he was severely persecuted. David is talking about how he's persecuted for no reason, how more than the hairs on his head are the number of enemies who persecute him without cause. And there is no other person whom that was more true of than Christ himself. We look at the person of Psalm 69. Second example is the purge, not the movie, the purge in Psalm 69. When Jesus was cleansing the temple, he was driving out the money makers, the apostles were there, and they saw this happening and they recognized what he was doing as the fulfillment in Psalm 69. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. And in John 2, 17, it says that the, uh, the apostles saw this. So if, if you ever see it in the movies, right, uh, when they're depicting this, Jesus, he makes a whip out of his belt and he's flipping tables. So there's money everywhere. There's people running around that are mad. There's animals all over the place, animals that are being sold to sacrifice. So it looks like a, a bar fight happening in a barnyard and there's noise and money all over the place. And in the middle of all this chaos, the, the, <laughs> the apostles go, ah, Psalm 69, zeal for your father's house will consume me. That's what it's talking about. That's the purge of Psalm 69. And thirdly, the passion the passion, the, the narrative of the crucifixion. This is perhaps the most striking application of Psalm 69 is to Jesus is found in the passion narrative. So in this Psalm, the composer David, he hoped for some comfort and he was given gall and vinegar. He wanted comfort, he needed food and they gave him lousy food and they gave him vinegar to drink. And what happens right after this? David receives these things and he goes off with some violent cursing and imprecations. So he's been wrongfully accused. And for comfort, he's given these horrible things and he responds by cursing his enemies. Now what happens with Jesus when he's on the cross? He's hanging on the cross wrongfully. The zeal for the Father. He's hanging on the cross 
and he is given vinegar for his thirst, Mark 15 and John 19. And Jesus doesn't curse his enemies. This is where there's a fork in the road. Jesus says this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34. So when we read Psalm 69, we understand the original context of the covenant. But now we read it through the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. This uh, is prophetic. It foreshadows the person of Christ, the zeal of Christ, the passion of Christ, and there's several other prophecies that are fulfilled in here. Here's the takeaway. David's call for justice is fulfilled, it's answered in the person of Jesus. The imprecations are humanity's plea. The incarnation is God's response. So we call for justice, God answers it by sending the person of Jesus Christ. That's what incarnation means, God becoming incarnate, the word becoming flesh. So how do we reconcile the cursing of the Psalms and the love, uh, the call to love our enemies? The incarnation satisfies the imprecations. The incarnation satisfies the imprecation. The punishment of the wicked that David calls for was poured out on Jesus himself. The wrath that God's enemies rightfully deserved was poured out on Christ. So knowing all this, let's turn to Psalm 69 again and ask, how does this help us find God in our anger? How do I find God in my anger? The first thing that we see is this. Bring your anger to God. Bring it to him. We've seen in the last few weeks that we can bring our disappointment to God. We can bring our fear to God. And we see here that we can bring our anger. We must bring our anger to God. When we do so, when we bring our anger to God, we do it honestly. That's the first thing that we see in Psalm 69. David is not putting on a good face. He's not pulling any punches. He pours out his heart to God. Maybe we don't always do this. We're embarrassed by the ugliness of our anger, or we're scared by the power of our anger. We rarely pray or admit our anger and our hate and our outrage. We deny it. We suppress it. Here's the thing. If we suppress it, it can easily metamorphosize and transform into the thing that we hate itself. Here's an example. It's funny. It's really funny how this happens. Someone treats you horribly, puts you in an awful mood, and for the rest of the week, you're just ruminating on it. You're stewing on it. You're robbed of all rest. You're robbed of all joy. It puts you in a horrible mood, and all of a sudden, you start treating those around you horribly as well. And because you've been mistreated, and sitting on your anger, now you become the thing that you hate, and now you're mistreating those around you. Someone's horrible to us, it eats us up. So first we see that David brings his anger to God. He does it honestly, he pours it out. Second, when we bring our anger to God, we do it humbly. This is also what we see in the example of David. Notice David's humility in bringing his anger to God. Verse five, he says, "'Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done, are not hidden from you. So anger in and of itself, it's, it's kind of not the problem. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Jesus was angry. There's hundreds of examples of God being angry as well. It's what we do with our anger. 
because calls for justice are absolutely right. Anger, anger for the right things, it can be our emotional link. It's how we latch on and respond appropriately to the spiritual reality of evil. Anger at injustice is right. Here's the humbling part. Our anger, my anger, it might be a righteous anger. It's a righteous response to the evil in the world. My anger might also be an immature anger. Maybe something wasn't actually wrong, but I'm angry about it because I'm immature. And if we're honest, maybe our anger is sometimes a mix of both. And do you know what's great? God's gracious and he will use it. Eugene Peterson, he puts it this way. Prayer doesn't legitimize hate, it uses it. Imperfect prayers and imperfect emotions, these are the first steps, the first steps into the presence of God, where he, he has a way of dealing with things that's different than how we would think of doing it and better than how we think of doing it. But until we are in prayer, we are not teachable. So it's better to come to God honestly and humbly and pray imperfect prayers than to pray nothing. Last week, we discovered a formula for dealing with our fear, and I think it holds true for us today with anger. We don't hide our anger. We don't bow to our anger. We pray through our anger. We drag it into the presence of God honestly and humbly. We present this to him. And when we bring our anger to God, there's something that we must do and there's something that he will do. So we see that our bring, we bring our anger to God. And secondly, we see this, give your anger to God. I bring my desire for justice to God and I give my desire for justice to God. It's worth noting that neither David nor Jesus sought out their own vengeance. The psalmist here, he brings his anger and complaint to God and he entrusts it to him. Vengeance is the Lord's. They understand that. Deuteronomy 3, 20, uh, 35 and Romans 12 say, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is punishment that's inflicted or retribution that's sought out because of wrongdoing. And you will sleep better at night knowing that God is going to take care of everything. If you think, how can these people get away with this? Take refuge, knowing that God has and God will deal with all evil in the world. Vengeance is his and nothing will go unseen, unchallenged and unpunished. Vengeance is from God. Salvation is also from God. Verse 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. So we bring our anger, we bring our hate, we bring our pain, and we give it to God. What do we ask for in return? David brought his anger and he asked for justice. We bring our anger, but we already know that we have justice. So our desire for justice is satisfied in the person of Jesus. So for us reading this today in the prophetic context of Psalm 69, we don't just ask God to justify, pardon me, we don't just ask God to satisfy our anger, but to redeem our anger. We're told to love our enemies, 
But if you're told to love your enemies, this presupposes that you have enemies. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Our hate is used by God to bring our enemies to notice, brings it to notice, and then involve us in active compassion for the victims of this evil. Once involved, we find that anger provides the necessary spark for ignition. It is wrong. It is the wrong fuel for the engines. Only love is adequate to sustain these passions. So we've seen in this series that God takes our disappointment and he turns it into hope. God takes our fear and he turns it into trust. And God takes our anger and he turns it into compassion. God, I don't, I don't want to be compassionate to these people. But if I let you, you will make me. If we give our anger to God, he will transform it. And there's a fourfold process of this transformation that we see in Psalm 69. Pastor Sunder, he told me about this. I think he got it from Eugene Peterson. It ultimately comes back from Psalm 69. There's four steps. The steps are this, this transformation. When we prayerfully bring our anger to God, four things happen. God will move us from anger to suffering to lamentation to redemption. God takes our anger and he transforms it into compassion. When we actually begin to pray that God will bless them, we pray for their salvation because our, uh, our desire for justice has been satisfied on the cross. This fourfold transformation, I've heard of examples and I've seen examples of people going from anger to suffering to lamentation to compassion. This can happen in a weekend. This can happen over a year. But we are wronged or we see someone else wronged, and first we're angry. And if we bring this to God, then he will transform this into sadness. So I've been wronged many times, and my default response is anger. I'm very good at that, being angry at people who wrong me. Uh, I have a hard time remembering my own social insurance number, but I'm a savant when it comes to remembering the wrongs that have been done to me. And first I'm angry. And if I respond prayerfully, it turns to sadness. I'm hurt by what's done for me. And it turns to lamentation. And I cry out to God about this. And ultimately, sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes it happens slowly. I have compassion for this person. God gives me his perspective on them. For this person to lash out like this, they must be hurting a lot. They must be in a lot of pain. They must be really scared. They must be looking for hope in all the wrong places if the best thing that they can do is hurt other people. So this is the fourfold transformation. Now, normally this doesn't happen just in one prayer. God takes a long time to transform these with us, depending on how open we are with him, how receptive we are, how frequent we are in these cases. But here's a couple examples. In Psalm 69, we see Christ's anger in Psalm 69, his zeal for his father's house and how he drove the people away. We see his suffering in Psalm 69, how he suffered wrongly. He was given vinegar on the cross, just like David was offered these in the Psalm. David laments in the Psalm, just like Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the split where David calls for his enemy's destruction. Jesus calls for their redemption. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the redemption, the turning of the anger. This is his compassion. God, they don't know what they're doing. Please have mercy on them. 
And now God can do both. God can satisfy David's desire for justice and Christ's desire for mercy because of what happens on the cross. The incarnation satisfies the imprecation. And for us watching today, here's the good news. The incarnation satisfies your imprecation. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. How? How can I turn my other cheek? Because Jesus has freed me from the burden of needing to get even. It's hard. It's it's impossible. That's why we come to God and ask him to do this miraculous, transformative work. So I would like us to respond in prayer to this today. We've seen how God can speak to us in our anger, how he can take our moral outrage at the evil things in the world, and he can take it and transform it into a compassion, not only a compassion for the victims, but a a compassion for those doing the evil themselves. Because God needs there to be justice. God is not impartial to it. But I also need mercy and forgiveness. And so just as how God can have justice in the world and can also have mercy on me because of what happened with Jesus, so too now I am free to not be bound by my anger, but to give it to God and have him transform it and transform the anger in my heart. So for, I'm sure, many of you watching today, where are you still holding on to your anger? It's right to be angry at the evil and injustice in the world. But where are you holding on to it? Where have you not given it to God and allowed him to transform it? Where is it still eating you up? I'm sure it does not take very long to bring these things to mind. Would you pray to God? Would you bring your anger to him? Would you give your anger to him? Would you ask him to transform this, to relieve you of this burden of vengeance, of retribution? Would you give this to him? Would you ask him to transform it, transform your anger to compassion? That doesn't mean we're absent and hands off from the evil in the world, but as Christians, we operate differently in how we respond to this. We can be equally angry and outraged at the wickedness of the world and compassionate and merciful to the people who are engaging with it. And this is the beauty of the cross. So would you come to God, would you ask him to bring you through this transformation? It's not quick, it's not easy, but it's real and it's worth it.